welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for Thursday, April 3rd. Um, I want to welcome our guest, Tom Breitling, who uh, is here with us today. And first off, I'm going to go around the virtual table and uh, say hello to everyone. So, uh, Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun. Hi, how are you? Greetings, Hunter. Uh, doing very well, thank you. Excellent. David McKee, how are you? Fine, thank you. Dave Schwartz. I'm doing great as always. And Charles. Did we lose Charles? Chuck? Oh, no, I'm, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. Oh, he's, he's busy playing uh, Wii or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's me playing, I'm playing with Wii. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, the reason we have Tom with us today is that uh, he recently published a book uh, that I have sitting right here called Double or Nothing, which is the story, uh, well, it's not just the story about uh, about the, the Nugget stuff, but there's all, there's all kinds of stuff about Tom's, uh, Tom's experience in uh, various ventures, so... We're going to talk a little bit, well, at least I have a few questions, and I'm sure that uh, some of my co-conspirators do, too. Um, the roundtable, by the way. Very, very excited to be here, but good roundtable. Oh, great. I don't know if you've, it, yeah, we we, uh, we had uh, Christina Binkley on last time, who uh, wrote the Winner Takes All book, and that was a lot of fun. So, given the, uh, given the proximity of publication dates, it seemed uh, like this would be a good idea. So, very excited. Good. Cool. Well, um, I'm just going to let it rip, and then we'll see where the conversation leads. Um, for people that don't know um, the Tim and Tom story in 10 seconds, can you give us a rundown? Well, it's really a story about two guys. Uh, we talk about two deals, and we talk about those deals kind of being worth you know, several hundred million dollars, and we kind of go through the power of this particular partnership and really the partnerships that we establish um, you know, or have established throughout kind of our course in business over the last 15 years. Got it. And the first deal was the uh, the sale of an internet travel company called Travelscape that morphed from a predecessor. Um, it's funny. I uh, I actually remember bu- buying rooms from uh, LVRS way back in the day when it was LVRS.com. So it's funny to uh, it's funny to go back in the wayback machine and thinking about think about that. It's um, it's interesting because that business started. Um, as a result of, of a high school job that Tim had, he was actually working at, the, at the, uh, the end of the front desk of the Circus Circus. They had this referral business called Las Vegas Referrals. And if people, if you remember the old sign, the Circus Circus sign, it said, rooms available, if not, we'll place you. And it was basically, they, they, everybody would go to Circus Circus first. And then if there wasn't any rooms, they'd send you down to the end of this desk. And that's really where Tim started learning about the hotel business. And even though he moved to Vegas when he was six years old and lived in the sands and just kind of loved everything gambling, he really learned the travel business at the, at the end of the Circus Circus front desk. And so when he was in college down at SC, he wrote a business plan about really a travel company and how to do this particular business better because that was really just a commission business. And Tim's, Tim kind of came up with this idea for the merchant model, and it started with this one little one-by-one ad in the L.A. Times. It's funny. I mean, the story is definitely, you know, uh, uh, one of um, an amazing upward trajectory as things just seem to keep going better and better. And, and you know, also, though, people that are willing to make bets on themselves and take a chance and see what thing, what's going to happen. So I really enjoyed that part of the book. But um, I'm just curious, as I was reading it, at what point did you know that you wanted to even write a book? I mean, it, was it in a, well, I should, to go back a quick second? The second deal that that he mentioned is the purchase of the Golden Nugget Casinos, uh, Las Vegas and Laughlin. Um, 
at what point did you know you wanted to do a book? I mean, how did that really come about? Well, it started really after this the, this internet um, craze, and I, I after we had sold Travelscape to Expedia in March of 2000, I stayed on for a few years helping Expedia kind of learn about the hotel business, learn about Vegas, and really traveling around the world helping to set up these offices in London and Paris and Brussels and kind of educating all these Microsoft techies about the travel business. And it actually requires, you know, people that know travel rather than just know technology. So I, I at the end of that two-year period, I went on the board of directors of Expedia and it was kind of a surreal moment. It was a few months after 9-11, and I, I was in New York, and I go to Barry Diller's office because he had just acquired uh, the, the interest from Microsoft. And I, I got there a few minutes early, and I was the youngest board member, and I sat right between Barry Diller and Greg Maffei. And Greg was the former CFO of Microsoft and was the chairman of Expedia at the time, and he was kind of handing the reins over to Diller. After that three-hour meeting that basically – was everything hotels. I mean, the person in the room that knew the most about what they were all talking about was me because we had, and it was kind of overwhelming because every time a hotel question would come up, you know, I, I chimed in and my heart was just pounding, you know, because these guys are like titans. And after that meeting, I just went to Central Park and I started writing. And I started writing all of the stories about what it was like during this special time called the Internet. And that was really the, the, the early stages of it. And then these new chapters were written, and everybody said, you guys have such a great story to tell. You should really, you should really write, write a book. And that's, that's really how it, it morphed from idea, uh, you know, post-Internet, to, to reality post-Golden Nugget. Oh, well, it's um, <clears throat> a lot of fun reading the book. And, you know, it's some, there are some, uh, several parts that really uh, – Several experiences that sort of really stood out. One of them was the one you just mentioned. Um, the other was, for me was uh, your your telling of Steve Wynn coming to sort of give you his blessing at the Nugget. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what that was like? Well, it actually was pretty interesting because when we were going through our licensing to get the gaming uh, to get the gaming license, I got a call one day from Elaine Wynn. And Elaine said, uh, and we talk about it in the book. And, it, and I was Tim and I were pretty frustrated because, I mean, this process is very, very difficult. And you know, here we were, you know, ready to plunk down our millions to, to invest in Vegas. And and I mean, gosh, it just kind of felt like, like nonstop probing. And so Elaine called and said, "Listen, I know you guys are are feeling beat up, but we just want you to know that you need to respect this process, and it really is a rite of passage." And so we had this great conversation. And so after we got licensed, I think it was the 23rd of January, Steve Wynn's birthday is the 27th of January, uh, it kind of came about that, you know, we wanted to invite them to come down after we took over. And so sure enough, they came down for Steve's birthday on the 27th, and uh, they came down with Mark and Jane Shore. And they, uh, we had dinner at Lily Langtree's, and we had a couple-hour dinner to celebrate Steve's birthday, and and basically it was it was story after story after story about how he assembled the pieces of what is today the Golden Nugget, both from a real estate perspective as well as uh, just Sinatra stories about what it was like for you know traveling around the country with Sinatra, you know how how he did things differently, and he was kind of embedded in the stories were these these pieces of advice, 
Tim and I that Tim and I uh, you know took to heart. But it was interesting because before Steve got down there, uh, Tim, I remember Tim saying to me, and he says, "Tom, just do me a favor. Don't say anything stupid." <laughs> <laughs> and I was just because I you know of course I have all the questions, but no, you know you just sit back and listen, and, and you just you realize just how valuable of a, of a dinner and of a meeting that that was. You touched on your on your licensing, and you know I that that I was really glad to ha- that that was included in the book um, in with you know some detail because that's the kind of thing that you 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 know that people go through these processes and some people more more quickly and smoothly than others, um, but you never really at least that I'm aware of I've never really heard a real good telling of what it's like to be the subject of that kind of an investigation. I mean it's obvious that uh, that it is pretty intense. But, you know, you talk about the FBI showing up at your office and <laughs> wanting to rattle through all your stuff. It's, I mean, it's it's really one of the most intense processes. And I think, but I, I do think, uh, we were talking about it the other day, that the, that the regulation is important. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why Las Vegas casino companies can get access to, to so much money. I mean, maybe not in today's marketplace, uh, as you know, we're kind of seeing with the credit crunch. But in general, because of the of the high regulation, and and but I think when you're going through it as a youngster, like we were, um, you just you know, and also we're, we were individual owners, whereas most people they go as part of a big corporation. And so, but I actually have a, a newfound respect for the process. And while I think we were we were we were put on a pedestal a little bit, um, you know, we just didn't know to the extent of of of, uh, of what they do. But now now we do. <laughs> yeah. Now we know. And um, but it was eye opening. And I'm glad. I think people in the book are going to see that um, that it's a, it's if you're willing to invest in this marketplace, you better be willing to to go through the licensing process. And but but it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, I mean, but given given the, the makeup of the market today, and uh, especially the Las Vegas Strip, but even even downtown and off Strip, do you think that it's even possible for a couple of owner operators like like you guys to ever to ever enter the market again? I mean, the the, uh, the capital requirements are so insanely high. The price the price of admission goes up. I think every day. Um, it, it's it's finally. I mean, we we've been sitting on the sidelines for a while because I think. The price of the price of admission went so high that Tim and I we were you know we ran our models and we were just like we can't afford to do these deals at X million dollars an acre or what have you, and then when you talk about access to capital, um, it's it's definitely a limitation. But I think it's interesting because you have guys like George Maloof that continue to invest in the market, uh, and it's a lifestyle for him. You know you have guys like Sam Nazarian that that made an investment in the Sahara. So there are, there's definitely an opportunity for people to to enter the marketplace, but I do think it gets more and more challenging. And I do think you know you do have to have um, a lot of courage uh, to be polite about it uh, in order to get in the business. Because and now you can you can make less and less mistakes. I think because it's about what what is it uh, we were talking about used to be that north of 80% was gaming revenues, and now it's less than 40. So you really have to have a, a huge non-gaming presence. To take care of those customers, uh, or really the modern-day Vegas customer, and I mean that's definitely the, that's definitely the truth. And it's also interesting to see how those numbers play out with uh, respect to the downtown market in comparison to the Strip, which has traditionally been, you know, much downtown's been much more focused on the more hardcore gaming side of the customer base. 
Well, I think downtown is uh, stands for like value for your dollar, and I think downtown has it has a history to it, but it's going to take continued investment. It's that it's the old adage, you know, change or die. And I think downtown needs to. Get, you, I don't care who you are or where you are. You have to constantly reinvent yourself. And so downtown, you know, starting to see you know millions of dollars of investment come down. It's not necessarily gaming related, but I do think with all of the new properties coming on board that are what three, four billion dollars, I think there there is a value prop for the customer that wants that wants a good deal, and I think downtown can offer that as long as the product quality at least maintains maintains a certain level, and because customers are more intelligent than we give them credit for, and sometimes. And I think that we, you know, these rooms get used so much that you have to have some sort of a capital expenditure uh, to make sure that you provide a high quality to your customer. I would wholly, wholly agree. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I got from the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the sort of uh, the going online and using the web uh, was seemed like it was sort of originated with you, that idea. Um, are you a, like a, would you describe yourself as a computer nerd? Are you a, a tech person or, or is it something that you ha- that you just uh, saw the, the train was going that way? Well, I think Tim, my business partner Tim, is probably the first one to buy whatever new gadget comes out. He doesn't care. He's not cut, you know, he's not cutting edge. He's bleeding edge. I mean, he wants to know what's out there, how does it work, uh, and do I like it. For me, I like all of that, but at the time, I, it was kind of by default. I... We were growing so fast before the internet. We were growing at like 80 or 100 percent a year with our travel company, and then I, there was a couple things that happened. I actually attended this travel conference in Chicago, and Jim Barksdale was the keynote speaker, and he basically pointed his finger at everybody in the audience and said, "We are going to turn your world upside down. Okay, the internet is going to change everything, and it's going to drastically affect uh, the travel business." And it really, from that point on, I, I started to, to really look at our business differently. And I started to invest in the Internet. We started with a brochure-like website. And then, then I started to really become a techie. I started to you know, meet with developers and understand code. And then my brother, who, who was actually studying technology at the time, we started just talking about it. Okay, what could you do with technology? So we kind of got into the guts of, of a website and because I really wanted to learn about how to create online reservation system. And so then I started answering phones. And, and Tim used to get mad at me because there would be like 30 or 40 calls on hold, and I would just jump on the phone and start answering phones instead of, you know, I just there's only so much prep you can do when you're running ads in the Review Journal trying to get more reservations agents. Finally, I said, to heck with it. I'm just jumping on there. And that's, there was one phone call that came in, and it kind of kicked everything off for me in addition to the Jim Barksdale conference. And it was this customer that said, when are we going to be able to book online without talking to anybody? Because we've been on hold for like two minutes. And so I was like, gosh, these people, you know, these customers have like ADD. And I started to realize this is popular culture talking to me. This is, this is a customer saying our time is limited and valuable, How, and this is a way you can make your business better. So when I was talking about every entrepreneur looks for a way to make their business better, this was a way to make it better. And it hit me smack in the face because then I answered another call, and I started asking the customer, and they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And so we spent $11,000, hired a developer, then we spent another 50000 in marketing, and our business transformed from a travel company to an Internet travel company, and I kind of transformed from a travel executive, so to speak, to really a, a kind of a techie or a travel techie. 
and I loved everything about the Internet. I mean, it changed everything for our business. And you want to talk about change or die. I mean, some of these companies that we looked up to, you know, in the early 90s were, were now actually going out of business. And I said, man, how, how could that happen? Because they didn't change with the times. They didn't, they didn't adapt to the Internet. And that's really what affected that, the first business and, and the LVRS Travelscape uh, evolution. Well, definitely uh, ended up working out quite well. Um, it was I, a roller coaster I, ride, though, Hunter. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like it, and I think that's that's what makes the book uh, a, such a fun read. Is that you know it's not uh, it's not just uh, all uh, all one way. There's all kinds of ups ups and downs, and I you know I felt like you, you guys captured that in the book. Um, it it really came across that way. Uh, I'm going to ask another question, and then I'm going to let my compadres uh, jump in here. Okay. Um, what are you doing now, or, what, or what's next? And, and if you don't mind, I'm also curious to hear what, what Tim's up to these days. Of course. Well, Tim and I, uh, like I mentioned before, we're sitting on the sidelines a little bit in terms of Las Vegas and the investments here. Um, we, we love Las Vegas. We, love, we want to be here. We love the gaming industry. But I, I do think you have to exercise uh, common sense, and you have to exercise good timing. And I think you know we're just starting now to see – um, some valuations uh, adjust, and so hopefully we'll be back in the Vegas gaming business in the next few years uh, if we can find the right deal and the right partners. Um, so that's that's really our goal. And as far as what I'm doing, I'm actually I'm really excited about this book. I'm kind of going across the country, and I'm going to be speaking uh, at various uh, at various places uh, about the book. And because I really do have I do have a, a strong urge to give back and and hopefully inspire people about entrepreneurship and about business and 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 you know while a lot of that has to do with this special place called Las Vegas uh, I really am excited to do that and go and promote the book because I'm proud of it I'm, I, we put a lot of work into it and I think there's a lot of great themes in there about friendship and building powerful partnerships and along with the friendship and the partnership the loyalty and the trust and taking risks and, you know, here we now have had this turn in the economy, and people are starting to – they'll probably start to lose their jobs. You're starting to hear about layoffs. And I think it's important for people to realize and be encouraged uh, about business and about starting businesses and that things – this is all cyclical and that things will turn. Or in the book, we talk about the rubber band snapping back or, you know, the, 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 you know, the economy will rebound. And I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand that especially at a time when, you know, you're kind of feeling low or if you lost your job. And so we're going to go speak at universities. We're going to go speak uh, and do some book signings and read some chapters and things like that. So I'm really excited about that, and hopefully people will be encouraged about kind of our version of the American dream. Awesome. Hey, but I, did, I did get married, by the way, too. So I have, Oh, uh, hey, congratulations. Thank you. I finally have a little personal life, and my wife, my wife is, uh, is uh, we're going to have a little girl. And so oh, awesome. And on the personal Great. side, too. So. Tom, uh, Jeff Simpson here. How are you doing today? Good, Jeff. Nice to talk to you. Um, and I will, uh, I will take a little credit. I think I broke the story of you guys uh, buying the Golden Nugget in the first place. And uh, um, I, seem, I, I remember how uh, all, all your friends over at Station, they refused to verify that for me. But um, And I want, that's one thing I really took from the book is you guys place a lot of emphasis on loyalty, and you have a lot of loyal friends. And one of the things I found most interesting in the book is – your description of the sale process when you and Tim um, 
and uh, Andre and uh, Mr. Matheson decided to sell the casino to uh, to Landry's restaurants, the Tillman Fertitta. And, uh, you know, certainly I would say Tillman and uh, particularly his uh, general counsel, who I've had my own um, sort of uh, tough dealings with, those guys don't come off as like being the the uh, the best characters in the book, and um, I was I was wondering if you could talk about um, sort of your thoughts about the people you left behind at the Golden Nugget when you sold the property. There was a lot of um, people lost their jobs, um, and uh, you know I just wondered what your thoughts were about you know it's sort of the nature of business, but on the other hand, there's some personal relationships there. I was wondering if you could sort of share your thoughts about what happened to those folks after you guys uh, you know made your uh, your big profit. Well, I, I don't know exactly what what the Landry's group did in terms of. Uh, I know they invested, you know, 140 million dollars into the property. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think what they and they w- they did that sooner than we would have. I mean, mm-hmm. we grew up a lot of those plans about the expansion, and so you know, we were committed to building a multi-billion-dollar gaming company. And if you talk to any of the employees that worked with us, I mean, I think most of them would say that they felt this new energy when we were there, and so. I think that was probably the hardest part for us was not only leaving the business, um, but kind of leaving this family that we had worked so hard to create in just a 12-month time. Because, you know, if you do look at the history of the decision-making process, we were we were planning to be in it for the long term. But we did have to kind of shift into kind of Kirk Kikori and the dealmaker uh, rather than than uh, Steve Wynn, you know, the creator, I think, is what, how I reference it in the book. And that was, that was a tough choice because there's so many people we enjoyed working with. And so as far as, as, far as uh, the employees, um, I mean, I think that there was a, there was a, uh, there's a difference in philosophy between myself and Tim and, and the Landry's group. I mean, they're based in Texas. And so I'm not sure, uh, you know, who's, like, I just don't know enough about kind of philosophically their organization other than that it's a much bigger corporation. And But what I do know is they spent $140 million downtown at a time when it was much needed. And they breathed their own version of new life into the property. And so, um, you know, I don't know the number of employees they have, um, and it's hard for me to comment on that. Do you ever go to the Golden Nugget now? Do you still go back there? You know what, Jeff? I, I haven't set foot in it uh, one time since the since the day we sold. Wow! And I mean, it was it's one of those things where it was. Um, I just I've moved on, and and I see a lot of people, and I talk to a lot of people, and and all I hear is that they they uh, loved working with us, and uh, and they would love to work with us again. Well, that was very diplomatic, Tom. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised by that. The, the other, the other question I wanted to ask, and you had a couple little teases in the book, and I, I read the book, and it was uh, very enjoyable. I think you know people interested in entrepreneurship, people interested in Las Vegas, in the casino business, um, you know, should read it. Um, one thing you you, may, you have a note, and didn't I don't think you explained it unless I missed it, um, where Governor Gwynn you know, sort of like in an offhanded way, said, what the hell are you guys doing or what are you guys doing over there? And I think that was a reference to your uh, your uh, sort of short-run TV show, um, the, the Casino. But 
I guess I would like to ask, you know, um, did you get much negative feedback from state regulators, from state officials, from uh, maybe your some of your peers in the casino business about that show, some of sort of the the oddities. I know that producers, you know, they have a lot of leeway and they can make you guys, and you describe that pretty well in the book, they can make you guys look, you know, a little different than the way you probably really ran the business. But I just wonder what kind of feedback you got from, from gaming regulators in particular and from other state officials about sort of the way that um, that show portrayed your operation and the business in general. Well, I think that Vegas is funny in that it's people cheer for you and they talk about how excited they are that you're in the business and yet it's probably the most competitive landscape uh, in the country and everybody thinks that that the business is easy so from the competitor standpoint you have that that playing into uh, playing into things as far as the regulators I think that, that you know we got a limited license and so I think the spotlight was on us I mean we had the TV cameras in in the licensing hearings oh I remember <laughs> and it was I mean I, I look back at it and I say were we crazy I mean we were going through this and but it was one of those things where we were kind of paving paving uh, the way or breaking breaking new ground in terms of like television programming and so but we were doing some things differently and I think we had to do that to get people talking about not only downtown but the Golden Nugget and the fact that Tim and Tom were the new owners of the Golden Nugget now in the book you see that that Tim is portrayed as one of the most unique characters and Jeff you've met Tim you've interviewed him many times and Tim is he is a unique character but he loves the city and he loves doing things differently. It's just naturally for him, natural for him. It's very organic. And so we we definitely had the spotlight on us. And I remember, uh, I, I think it was made public. It had to be. But, you know, we were dealing cards uh, to our customers. Tim's like, wouldn't it be great to deal like Sinatra deal, you know, dealt? Not necessarily the story that Sinatra's known for. But, and so Tim wanted to deal to some customers. And so... We called up gaming, and they said, that's fine, as long as you treat, treat them the same as you'd treat anybody else. So, of course, that's fine, but then all of a sudden, Tim's dealing to the Sopranos, and he starts dealing, you know, whatever. He gives them, well, someone You a don't card. like that card, take this card. Exactly. Yeah, you have, that's in the book. And we got fined 20000 uh, I think, was what the fine for it. So, I mean, that was a, and that happened very quickly. So, to say they didn't, they didn't, <laughs> they weren't watching what we were doing. Um, is I guess I just I wondered more about some of the the more lurid stuff in the show. Like I, I, I remember one particular episode where I don't know if it was just Tim or whether it was both you guys like listening at a door of one of your customers, and you know you had and you mentioned this in the book that you know they sort of focused on you know any any time they could get any hint of sex in the show, they certainly took their they certainly took the opportunity, and that seemed like something just based on my knowledge of the gaming regulators and in particular who was on the control board then that that might have caused you a little heat that you didn't really discuss in the book well I think I think that um, there's a couple things there one was in the television show we talk a little bit about manufactured drama mm -hmm. and uh, but I think it goes deeper than that when when the things that were out of our control and because Vegas is so regulated in the gaming industry I mean um, 
they there's a lot that they couldn't film and i mean we had a lot of customers absolutely they wanted nothing to do with it so they had to do some casting and that's when they started to cast for some shady characters and that's where there was some embarrassment you know you start you start reading uh you know some headlines or you start hearing what the buzz is and that really happened pretty quickly in the show and i think that that you know i i unfortunately there was some some producers on the show that thought that was going to be exciting for the Fox audience. Now, I, I wasn't mm-hmm. privy to the conversations between Fox and Mark Burnett, mm-hmm. so I didn't know what they were going after. But the only thing I could control was the cam- when the cameras were around us, okay? And those were kind of behind-the-scenes uh, um, behind picture of what it's like to be a casino owner and that and that drama, which there is a lot of it. But they decided to go in a different direction, and that's when... I just, you know, you hear the comments from the governor and you start hearing, you try to be proactive and let people know. But, I mean, I remember getting a phone call one day saying that Tony Bennett wanted nothing to do with the show. And, I mean, here it just shattered my entire uh, vision for what we were trying to create with this vintage Vegas theme. And it was really kind of surreal because you have Tony saying, I don't want to be your entertainment partner and I want nothing to do with this TV show because you're t- you and you have these... You have transvestites on, and you have a you know this guy who's trying to hustle girls to 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 you know be part of his his entourage and all this stuff. And I mean, and then you have the producers asking us to walk by a room that you know you, you know ooh boy there must be a party going on in there. And it's like you know and you just you're kind of you're so focused on running your business you know and you're trying to be helpful to the producers, but it it was it was embarrassing um, for the things that we couldn't control. And uh, especially when you run into the governor, or you're you know you're trying to you're trying to make a difference. But the weird thing was, you go on the casino floor, and everybody's like, "Hey, what's going on? We're here because of you." And you're like, "Oh, what is? Going-? I mean, it just makes your head spin." Thanks, Pat. Yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Oh, Dave Schwartz here. Uh, you, if I can ask a question, I'm kind of curious. You think if. Uh, Tim wrote a book. How do you think it would be different? What do you think he would would emphasize that you didn't? Well, Tim actually was interviewed probably 20 or 30 times for this book. And I think Tim might take uh, more of a his, – his passion really lies in the gambling. And, and I think Tim's book would be very, very strong on, some, on a lot of the same themes – um, maybe a different approach to it, but the friendship and the loyalty, um, the gambling perspective, the taking risks. He loves the idea of like making and losing millions. I mean, he, you know, it's for him. It's you know that that saying in the book about the legendary odds maker. If you think you got the best of it, take that aim, and we'll call it hold on for the ride. But he, that's Tim. That's him to a T. But Tim, I think it might have a lot more Jack Binion. In it, and then then uh, then Steve Wynn, if that makes if that makes any sense, a lot more Bobby Baldwin than Terry Lanny, and so Tim he he just he loves the gambling side of it. I mean, we had we interviewed Jack Binion for this book, and he was talking about manufactured emotion, and he was talking about like we were talking about March Madness, and coincidentally we're in, we're in March Madness right now, and he said you don't you forget about ever having to go to UCLA or Memphis or Kansas and or North Carolina, you make a bet on one of these teams, and and you're in action, baby. That's manufactured emotion. I mean, Tim was we loved sitting with Jack Binion for three or four hours, 
talking about these stories. So I, I would say that Tim's book would would be more about that and maybe what it was like driving to Vegas in an, in, a, in, a, in an old Cadillac from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and pulling in, you know, to Vegas in 1974 and and living at the Sands and like you know there might be a couple chapters about old Vegas kind of in that perspective, but I think it would document a lot of the same things that we document, you know, in the Double or Nothing book that, that, that we just finished. So um, I know in every book there's always some stories that have to be left out because of editing and stuff like that. What are, you know, can you think of, a, of maybe one or two stories that you thought would be really good for the book but didn't quite make it in but are, but are interesting anyway? I knew there was going to be a zinger, David, <laughs> that was coming. Um, there was, gosh, there was a lot of there was a lot of stories that I think we we minimized. Um, I think we got most most every story in there. Um, I think with with the exception of um, you know a few things that happened you know in the Golden Nugget. But I, I actually am really like we incorporated almost every story that I wanted to include into the book. But um, gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I'm gonna to have to like give give one of those give give that one some more thought. Okay. And any anything else? Maybe just kind of to tell people what it's like a day in the life of a guy who co-owns the casino, co-owns the Golden Nugget, and kind of just what what that feels like. Well, I think that there's that Richard Branson saying, "It's not work, it's not play, it's all living." And I think people need to realize this. You know, it's definitely not a nine to five job, and it's more of a lifestyle. And uh, there's, Steve Wynn told us once, he said, there's something you abs- have to absolutely love about this business. And and if not, it's not it's not magnetic enough for you, and you shouldn't be in it. And I think for this, you know, Tim, it, it, it was, he was living out a dream, and him and I had talked about it ever since that famous car ride down the strip where in Tim's beat-up Chevy saying, one day we're going to own our own hotel and casino. And, and it was, you know, it was gradual baby steps along the way, but it was like at first we were like, okay, maybe we could own a residence inn or a courtyard or something with 15 machines and a bar next to it. And then, you know, we did this this big proposal with, with Tito Tiberti in the mid-'90s, you know, for some land by the airport. And so we were like, oh, that would be great too. And we were going to try to capitalize on that small convention market. And then when that didn't happen, you know, because of the zoning, then we, then we, we focused on the Internet. And then when we sold that, <clears throat> we – we realized we had the resources to buy and sell the golden nugget or to buy the golden nugget. And, but I think that there's, it's like a mini city. These hotel casinos are like mini cities and you have to surround yourself with an incredible team. And we were very fortunate that there were so many good people at the golden nugget when we took over, including the president, Maurice Wooden. And he, he really had that same familial type of approach. And so for me, it was, I moved into the hotel for 10 days. I lived in the hotel uh, and didn't leave. I don't think I left the property at all for five straight days because I wanted to get to know every person. I wanted to get to know every department. And it took a while to even sink in that we actually owned the place. I walked into the to the uh, to the bakery one day and I asked the chef, "Can I can I have this cookie?" And the guy goes, "Tom, you own the cookie. You can have whatever you want." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." And it was I introducing myself, talking to people, making sure they understood that we cared. And I think that that's an important part of it. But it's nonstop action. I mean, you'd work 7 in the morning to midnight, and then you'd find out that your biggest gambler was coming in. And so I think that there's there's a sense of flexibility that you need to have 
Uh, and for us, normally that would be handled by the casino, but for us, we wanted to be there. Tim was really hands-on. I mean, really, he really wanted to be the modern-day Jack Binion. Mm -hmm. oh, what a story. Absolutely. Uh, I want to make sure that um, anybody else that has a question has a chance to ask it. And uh, and if not, then I've got a couple other things I wanted to talk about, and hopefully Tom can stay for a few minutes. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a little something. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, you know the, the the book is great. Uh, I I've kind of had a similar sort of life. I was working in the dot com industry right before it boomed and blew up, and then I discovered Vegas and fell in love with that. And uh, a similar a similar life minus you know the hundred million dollars. Yeah, well, minus yeah, minus the money. So that that was pretty much what my question is going to be. Uh, how has the money changed your life you've hit the jackpot once in business and even again in business which is a very rare thing for anybody to have uh so how has that changed your life and changed your outlook on on things well i think just from the business perspective first first and foremost is that we are so excited about the future that it's now given us the resources and the credibility to continue to pursue, I think, really exciting deals and, and much bigger deals. And, but I think that there's some core values there that, that kind of stayed true between the Internet and the hotel and casino. Like you have these, you know, the, the work ethic. I mean, things don't fall in your lap. I mean, let's be honest. It's, you have to work for everything you get, okay? And that's what's great about the country is that if you're willing and, and great about Vegas, is that if you're willing to put it all out there, Vegas will either hit you with the left hook or it'll welcome you into its arms, okay? And I think that we tried to be smart about having good timing in terms of getting into the business. Um, we, we, we hit this amazing, uh, in, in the hotel casino business, we hit this amazing run with the Internet, but it just helped transform our business. I mean, we went from working 16 hours a day to 18 or 20 because the adrenaline rush was so high. And the, and the business just took off. And so the money the money's kind of a measurement, and it's allowed – I mean, I didn't buy my first I – didn't, I didn't – I mean, I live in a condo now, and I, and I didn't buy my first house until five years ago. And, you know, I just – I wasn't paying attention to it. I was so excited just as an entrepreneur about building, building businesses and building this business. And it frustrates me a little bit that – that people give us a hard time about only being in the golden nugget for a year. I think we were intelligent deal makers. Okay, I think we did a great deal, and and we're we're going to hopefully build something valuable in the future, and we're excited about that. But I mean, it's nice to you know, these guys gave me a hard time about being like this bumpkin from Barnesville, and I went out and bought a Ferrari. But I mean, I did that, but it was it was it was something that was I don't know. It's I mean, I don't have it anymore. Put it that way, and so. It's um, I don't know. I've been, I'm more interested in in what the next deal is, and so I think entrepreneurs like me and Tim, we just we, it, the the interest and the intrigue is in in building a business. And I was doing this this uh, interview the other day, and we were talking about the Jersey Boys, and just watching that show in New York last year, and hearing these guys talk about how some of the most fun times they had was under the street lamp and. And, you know, they did a deal on a handshake, too, but it was like some of the most fun times we ever had was those early years at Las Vegas Reservation Systems and Travelscape, where our dog, Bally, was on the, on the 
you know, entry entry chair and and we're running around and playing jokes on each other and a bit you know, you just you're living and breathing that business. And I mean, we sat up all night and sketched out the first website. And I those those are the those are the moments that you cherish, but it's always fun as a measurement of success to see uh, you know, what value you build in a business. And I always respect it. I always respect young entrepreneurs for what they're building. And so, like, people ask me, ooh, do you really, do you like the restaurant business, Tom? It's like, will you, will you be a partner with us in a restaurant? I mean, the restaurant business is one of the toughest business businesses you can be in, especially with rising food costs and, and a slowing economy. And it's like, so I, you know, I try to be as candid as I can with people, but I also say don't just think about one coffee shop or one restaurant. Try to think about how you could grow your business. Don't lose sight about how to make it great, but try to think about making it bigger. You know, don't, don't think about a corner travel store anymore. Think about an online travel store that you can, that you can make much bigger and maybe take it to the, to the entire world. So I think my, my perspective's changed a little bit in terms of dreaming big, uh, and, and it's just kind of a variation of the dream. And, but I, I just I love, I love going to colleges and, uh, you know, and various universities and just hearing students talk about what their dreams are. I got an email the other day. There's two, two stories I think you guys find interesting as a result of kind of launching this book that have, that have hit home with me. The first one is I was at a, a Borders bookstore, and I was signing some copies of the book, and, and this, this kid must have been, gosh, 10 years old, walked in with his mom, and he sees me signing the books, and he goes, what's this book about? And I said, oh, it's about entrepreneurship, and it's about business in Vegas. And he goes, you know, I, and I said, and it's about casino ownership. And he goes, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. And he told me about how he's selling candy or something. And he said, I would love to own a casino one day. And like this 10-year-old, like his <laughs> eyes lit up. And so, and, and they bought a book, and it was like, and it was, it was the neatest thing to hear this young 10-year-old talking about how he just, like, in, loves the fact about making his own money and, like, building a business. And then the other story is I got this email from a student saying that they didn't just want to be a front desk clerk at a hotel. They, 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 were, they wanted to own their own property, not in Vegas, but they wanted to own their own hotel. And reading, reading my book like inspired them that it was actually possible because everybody was telling this person no 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 and after reading my book they realized that here I was a kid from Burnsville Minnesota who shoveled driveways and mowed lawns for five dollars a pop but through these baby steps and, and always focusing on growth and dreaming big we ended up as you know a couple of the youngest casino owners in Vegas and owning a 2,000 you know room property uh, in Las Vegas so that anything is possible mentality, you know, kind of keeps it going for me as an entrepreneur. Excellent. Um, well, uh, I think what <clears throat> what uh, I'd like to do is first off, Tom, thanks so much for for uh, coming on and, and talking about the book. Um, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's our pleasure. Um, wh- a couple other things in in the news this week that I think are of interest. And uh, just touch on them real fast before we before we wrap for the day. Um, and one one may not be something that's on everyone's radar, but we had, uh, as I said before, we had uh, Christina Binkley on last week, and her book is called Winner Takes All, which is sort of a story of uh, business uh, deals in Las Vegas. And um, you know, Steve Wynn is uh, portrayed in the book. Uh, he's sort of the star of the book to some degree. And um, it, I don't think it's uh, news to anybody that he was not thrilled with his depiction in the book or or at least he sort of had a falling out with the with the author at some point. Uh, and it's funny he was interviewed uh, in an interview I heard uh this morning by Steve Fries who's a, a local uh, Las Vegas um 
freelance writer, uh, where Steve Wynn really goes off on Christina, uh, saying how disappointed he was with her, and he basically considers the book. Um, I know he didn't have a lot of kind words for the book or its author. He said, um, he said Hunter, that she was um, not <clears throat> not really concerned with accuracy, which uh, you know totally does not square with my impression of Christina. You know, I have a lot of. Uh, a lot of you know certainly I have a lot of respect from um Steve Wynn and um interview him regularly but um on that I would disagree I mean he may disagree with her one assessment but um he hasn't read the book he was relying on Steve's paraphrase and and you know, on Steve Fries's paraphrase and you know um you know Christina is a very solid journalist she wouldn't be working at the Wall Street Journal if she wasn't and uh and you know it's to, you know I, and I understand it's tough to be you know I mean he you know Steve Wynn just has a different perspective than she does and I think reasonable reasonable people can disagree Oh I absolutely agree I, one one interesting uh take on it that that maybe Tom you could uh comment on is Steve in Steve Wynn sort of <clears throat> He makes the point that stories, when they are retold, uh, it's easy for the, for the details to uh, get fudged a little bit, and then the story takes on a completely different character as it is pushed through you know, multiple tellings. As someone that has been written about, um, I mean, would you agree with that assessment, and how has that affected you as far as the, in the coverage that you've gotten when you've read stories that didn't seem <laughs> exactly familiar in your own recollection? Well, we, we haven't always been treated – I mean, we've always been treated, I think, um, like the attempt to be fair was there, but I'm not sure the result was always there. And that's why, like in our in our interview process for for Double or Nothing, we had, I mean, we went back to Tim like 20 or 30 or maybe 40 times. And I mean, Jeff, you know Tim. I mean, Tim's like Tom. I've told this story ten <laughs> times already. We finally pulled out, you know, some of those extra details in his recollection of it to help really make it concrete, so that when he read the book, he was he was very satisfied. But there was also a level of depth there, and I think you guys have all acknowledged that that we were very candid in in our book about it. But as far as being treated fairly, I do think that. It depends on the intent. I mean, it depends on the angle of the story, and and I think that I mean I haven't read I've read read bits and pieces of the of the book, and I wasn't present, you know, in any of those situations. But I do think I've, I've I'm much more intelligent now in terms of trying to communicate clearly uh, to to uh, you know folks like Jeff and everyone else in the marketplace about what it is that we try to do, you know, ways that things played out. And uh, I mean, it's a fast-moving business. It's a, it's a fast-moving world, and so um, you know, I can't really comment on the specifics until until I actually read the book and and see what I think. But I mean, we have to kind of let let people agree to disagree, like you mentioned, Hunter. Uh, well, you know, I I don't want to harp on this on this Steve Wynn interview too much longer. I did think that there was a funny, uh, a fairly funny um, Wynnism where he refers to Sheldon Adelson as being off his meds. Uh, which I just thought, you know, that, those are why those interviews with Steve Winter still are so fun to listen to because he he just lets it rip sometimes and he's not scared to say anything. So for those for those listeners that haven't already heard it, uh, thestrippodcast.com is uh, featuring it this week, and it, it is an inter- interesting interview with Win covering Encore and some of the other details. So I recommend it. Um, but one thing that I did want to talk about before we wrap is um, is Columbia. Sus- By the way, I do think it's interesting when you talk about like multi-billion dollar deals being done over coconut sorbet. Now that part 
Like when I read the article in the Wall Street Journal, I said, now those are the details that I think people enjoy. And it's how, I mean, you never really get behind the scenes of what it's like between having a meeting with Kirk Corian and Steve Wynn. And I mean, these guys have known each other for so long. And then to hear, you know, I just, uh, you know, caught again, I've been so busy with, with PR for Double or Nothing that I just, I kind of heard that snippet about a deal getting done over some coconut sorbet, and I just, I kind of laughed myself. Well, both, the book is, is definitely worth reading, and, and in combination with your book, it's great to, uh, you know, have two, have two fun reads for an industry that, uh, you know, hasn't had a lot written about it from that perspective, at least, uh, well, a couple of books, but uh, it's, it's great to have some new stuff, uh, some, some new interesting stuff come out. So. I've been getting a lot of questions about the 21 movie and, like, card counting lately. Oh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, are card counters, like, you know, barraging Vegas now? And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't have a property. <laughs> Second of all, you know, it's, I would imagine that some people are going to think that those are the people that you might want to be playing blackjack. <laughs> have you guys seen the movie yet? I haven't. I read the book, and, uh, you know, I, the book, I guess, was okay. Um, it was, a, a, I thought, sort of a, sort of a fun read, but... It was a little over-dramatized for my taste. Um, you know, I had a hard time imagining a lot of those scenarios went down exactly as they're described. I, I've heard the movie's terrible. Well, I, some people I've who have seen it, they, they liked it. And I actually had one of the original guys stop by at a book signing I did, and him and yeah. I did for a few minutes. It was pretty interesting, actually. He, I he would agree to his story. You know, he agreed to put it in there, but he's he uh, he was kind of just shaking his head. I think there's a lot of. I think it's a fascinating topic, but you know, you get Hollywood uh, getting their hands on it, and <laughs> I'm I'm sure. Uh, well, I'm not rushing out to see it, but anyway. What's, uh, wait, what's the context of this remark that Adelson made that he offered win a job? Which I mean, on the face of it, just it sounds yeah so wholly uh, well, incredible in the literal I, sense. I think that also that's that's why Steve Wynn said it. Adelson was off his meds. I uh, I think. I think the original comment was made by Adelson to Steve Fries. No, it was, to Charlie, it was on Charlie Rose's oh, show. Charlie Rose, okay. It was on Charlie Rose's show, and he said, that's why I offered him a job. You know, the idea that, that Adelson, who owns, you know, is building the Venetian or who owns the Sands and a, and a convention is going to say that to the, pre, to the guy who runs Mirage Resorts sort of strains credulity. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, whatever. To me, the quote that I found most interesting of Adelson last week was when he said, when he when he called out uh, MGM Mirage for uh, for building or, or saying that they were going to build in Atlantic City only to appease the con- Casino Control Commission to allow their pansy ho relationship. And, uh, you know, I mean, certainly I think a lot of people in the business feel think that, you know, that, that probably won't hurt their case in New Jersey. Um, but Adelson is one of those guys who doesn't really mind breaking a few eggs. He'll, he'll say things that are, you know, very, you know, that are, that are tough on their competitors, um, and most other folks in the business don't do that. Now, obviously, Adelson and Wynn take shots at each other pretty regularly, but um, I, you know, I, I was just surprised by that. Um, you know, he said they would never get involved in Atlantic City, and any thinking person wouldn't. Um, pretty tough. He was pretty forceful about it. It, it was it, it was quite a statement. Well, I you know he maybe his frustration may be showing because you know he's done. 
Uh, it's, he's uh, or thought to have done so much, you know, just about everything in his power to derail that uh, that licensing procedure. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we uh, we couldn't. I don't believe we were able to definitively establish a relationship between Adelson and that uh, uh, the crazy minister. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there, there was in, they had possession of information that could have come from very few other sources. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone in the business who thinks that there's not some connection. And uh, which is, you know, and and so I mean, and the you know latest, uh, you know, the latest set of numbers from Macau shows that uh, that Adelson is starting to lose market share, mostly to. Uh, to Packer, Melka, but yes, yes, but but uh, MGM is starting to make some inroads, and uh, I think you know. You remember, this is the guy who, when the convention center here wanted to expand, he characterized it as a conspiracy to steal money from me, and I, <laughs> he, may, he may look on the Macau market as as you know that's my money, and here are these interlock. I was here first, except for Stanley Ho, and they're coming in and they're taking my money. And which is why I say that, you know, if Gary Loveman gets that casino in Macau that, that he wants, then, you know, he's going to feel the wrath of Sheldon, too. If you look at the market share change in Macau, it's sort of interesting. If you look at it and you say, oh, you know, SJM, Ho's company, they see, you know, they're obviously losing market share. Maybe, uh, you know, Venetian and Sands properties, this Las Vegas Sands properties, maybe losing a little bit after, you know, a real good opening boost. But, um I, a, a sort of a second look, if you look at Stanley Ho, if you give him credit for his daughter's half share mm-hmm. in MGM and for his son's half share in, in um, you know, Crown Melco um, for the, those operations, you know, Stanley's doing pretty well. And uh, and I think that you know yeah maybe maybe the uh, maybe Stanley Ho's wholly owned properties are doing well but I don't think the Ho family is uh, going to be impoverished anytime soon. Um, actually, Tom, I think I saw you. You were at the uh, at the win opening in Macau, weren't you? That's right. I think that's the last time I saw you, Jeff. I think I think it is. What what was your impression of that market? I mean, it's not a market that anybody in the, you know can just go put their uh, toe in the water. But um, I mean, uh, just such a dynamic market. It must have been. Uh, it must have particularly had had Tim salivating. What were what were your thoughts? <laughs> well, that, you characterized it pretty well. I mean, I think that uh, Macau is excited to have the Vegas operators there. Um, I think. It's everyone's taking a very long-term approach in terms of the number of, of Chinese that like to gamble and the number of Chinese that will be given access to travel. And so I think everybody, it's, 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 I think in, in one way Sheldon's right in that it's, it's not a quarter-by-quarter quarter analysis. It's, uh, it's, it's something that's being built for the very long term, um, even though these licenses you know, only last for, uh, you know, need to be extended after whatever it is, 18 or 20 years. But they, but I do think that everybody's really, really excited about kind of planting their flag, so to speak. And there's only going to be really six operators unless you do a JV with these folks. And so um, it's a huge market, and I think everybody realizes that. And uh, I mean, when we were together at the opening, I think the the people in Macau are like they were wowed. The wow factor is only going to continue, I think. And folks like Steve Wynn, MGM, Sheldon, Melco. 
you know, all the licensees and sub-licensees are going to continue to try to wow, except it's just going to shift to the Kotai. And while I've only been there a few times, uh, I look forward to going back. Uh, it's fascinating in terms of global global gaming. Mm-hmm. By the way, you mentioned uh, you make several mentions of taking a uh, set of plans for the Golden Nugget when you went down to meet Tillman Fertitta. How many of those plans uh, wound up getting put into uh, into uh, reality? When well, we had sale. It's interesting. We had. Uh, I think they are part of the way there. We had a couple hundred million dollars drawn up, maybe close to 300 in total expansion plans, including a thousand-room tower, and which which was going to take place because we needed to actually get get um, we had, we needed to kind of take what what do we I can't think about what you call it, but like we, we needed to kind of have them close the street, and we were going to kind of need to do that. So I think I mean I think they're part of the way there, and I think they've incorporated a lot of their restaurants that they have as far as far as their corporation goes and. They did a lot more at the pool than we would have done. I mean, I haven't been there, but I've seen the pictures. I don't think Tim and I had any sharks, <laughs> sharks uh, in our in our plans. But um, but yeah, they put they put. Listen, it's they put a couple hundred million dollars or 140 million dollars in so far, and I think some more is on the way. Well, not to not to take anything away from that, but I was there was had a. Uh, uh, meeting once over there, and uh, in between bouts of screaming profanity, Tillman Fertitta was showing off these plans, and you know you would not have gotten the, uh, the slightest inkling that they were anybody's but his. Yeah, <laughs> no, they, had, they had sprung full grown from the brow of Tillman Fertitta. Well, it's we brought these plans because I think part of it was we wanted to show that. We weren't. If you're positioning a company for sale and you're positioning a company for growth, it's two different approaches. And because you're going to position for sale, if you're going to you're going to try to make cash flow as high as it possibly can go, because you're going to try to sell off a multiple of cash flow. And so for us, we were kind of plowing money into plans and we were plowing money into growth. And and part of it was we wanted to. We were trying to figure out a way to create a better experience to cater to our customer, and that is the gaming customer. So we were trying to figure out a way to add. Some more slot machines, and maybe move our buffet so we could have kind of a different feel on the main floor. I wanted to add a new showroom, even though things are very competitive there. Our showroom was only 14 or 400 seats. We wanted to figure out a way to make it 1,400. So again, I haven't been down there, but there was. I think that they've probably done a variation of some of those plans. And you know what? It's probably been. It's been Tillman. You know, it's not. It's not any any vision to want to do an expansion. Um, and I'm sure he's adjusted, you know, his version of the expansion, uh, uh, you know, to, to include all of his restaurants and hopefully be, you know, something that's great for his customers. Well, it was pretty nice. He got a chunk of First Street from the city. Um, that, you know, that might have made your your brainstorming easier if you knew that was a solution. Well, we actually had looked at that. We were going to move that stage, and we were going to because that's where we needed to put, um, you know, move a little bit of. Uh, we were going to add some building. And so, uh, did they do that? Is that what they did? That's absolutely. That's where their new nightclub is on the second floor, overlooking uh, Fremont Street. And you know, they moved the buffet and they they moved it upstairs. They have a lot of uh, you know a lot more slot in a gaming area down on the ground floor. And listen, he 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 had the money to do it, and I think that his customers actually have a better experience now um, as a result. You, maybe you should take a trip back there sometime, even if it even if it would be tough for you. You should you should go check it out. I, I will. Bring the cameras. What? 
Bring but, the TV cameras with you. <laughs> yeah, you can have a new show. You can have a casino sort of uh, reunion. reunion. Show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that history down there, so it's interesting to see what's taking place. But you know what? There's owners down there that care. There's owners down there that are willing to reinvest, and I think there's owners down there that are willing to reinvent. And so hopefully what that means is a better experience for that, for that, uh, for that demographic. So you weren't talking about Tamaris then? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'll I'll save you from that one. <laughs> um, one more thing I want to touch on before we go, uh, and I apologize for going a little bit long, is um, the story this week. Uh, Columbia Sussex Corporation, everyone's favorite Las Vegas operator, um, apparently uh, had a convention at the Westin, which is right off the Strip, where the convention organizer did not pay their bill. And the conventioneers discovered weeks later that they were being charged for the uh, overdue payable of the uh, of the convention organizer. So imagine going to a convention, uh, coming home, and finding um, your share of the cost of running the convention on your credit card statement. Uh, oh, that's, it seems worse. like that's what's happened. Five months later. Right. So David, I mean, David, did I sort of characterize that right? You. Oh yeah. So. I mean, has anyone ever heard of this happening before? This is a total shocker to me. Of course not. <laughs> and the quote in the, in the story, it was a story, it was the Houston Chronicle. Um, it was of uh, from the LCCVA. It was, this, I thought, just incredible comedy because it was just saying, yeah, this is very unusual. It was, just, it was so restrained. It was hilarious. Well, it's sort of like having your, your pocket picked. I mean, apparently there's some, there's some fine print. In the uh, you know in the the invoices that the conventioners signed that says that well if the party of the first part doesn't pay the party of the second part i.e. Columbia Sussex then the party of the second part can can uh, get can seek repayment from the party of the third part i.e. you um, and but I mean it it certainly must feel a lot like having your pocket picked or something because unbelievable something yeah. it's unreal. Well, at least Columbia Sussex is uh, feeling its own pocket getting picked in New Jersey and Indiana. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that that's that's a, a fair thing for them to do their to their customers, but um, I don't know. You know, you, you, it's certainly hard to say that their prospects are very long anyway. So, well, plus they're they're inflicting collateral damage on the Weston <laughs> brand. Because that's, you know, that's a Weston flagged property, but how many of those 150 or however many conventioners there were, you think are ever going to to go back to that hotel or perhaps any Weston anywhere? Hey, I was well, that part of the loyalty card program. I mean, <laughs> exactly. yeah, you know, we're going to give you some great points here, but uh, you know, if, if the convention falls apart, we're going to whack you. It's like this strange inverted uh, inver- inverted rewards program. It's it's. I just thought it was the most insane thing I'd ever heard. And I, you know, I, it, and it sounds like there's like no recourse. These people are being referred to the legal department at, at Columbia Sussex. I mean, I can imagine how that phone calls, how that phone call would go. And you know, they're just such, they're just such ridiculously poor operators. Um, it's sort of funny. I mean, they have that ability, they have that brand that they, you know, they are allowed to use the Weston brand. Um, but they they established their own sort of sub brand for their you know for a few casino properties and they chose like the inexplicable casual arena whatever that means um, and so you know Weston has a pretty good name I think it's pretty recognizable for business and maybe even vacation travelers but 
you know, then they name it, you know, and, and, and there, that property, even before they bought Tropicana was a, it was just a horribly run property, a casino that like very, very underperforming. Um, so, you know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by any of their operating miscues and blunders, but this one seems like, you know, almost, um, malicious, um, you know, that's part of the, part of the unfortunate cost of doing business is that some, you know, not all of your, um, not all the people who owe you money pay, and it's sort of a part of doing business. But um, to go after, um, you know, convention goers and, you know, five, six months after the fact, it's the kind of a thing that, you know, doesn't just give them a bad name. I mean, they already have as bad of a name as you could get, but it gives the city a bad name, and it gives convention goers in Las Vegas reason to be wary, and uh, that's unfortunate. And so, you know, I thought it was um, it was a good story by the Houston Chronicle and Dave. It was a great catch by you to bring that to our attention because uh, it's just an amazing eye-opening story. Well, it's not, and it's not just ineptitude. It's it's greed. I mean, then, you know, this is a company where they they come into a, you know, they they get a hold of a property, and the first things they do are they they take a meat cleaver to the promotional allowances and they jack up the prices. And you know, dump promos, and uh, basically, you know, they they run everything as though they're in absolutely on the in in dire poverty. Which and and then you know to do something like this, where where it's, it's these people weren't just being hit up for a few bucks here and there. I mean, it was we're talking anywhere from six hundred and sixty-five to a thousand and thirty dollars a person that these people were were being charged on their credit cards. I mean, it's uh, ethically, I think it's just beyond the pale. Yeah, and you know, you've got to wonder how long it's going to take the, the same regulators who are hassling Tom over stuff a couple of years ago to step in here and do something after Indiana and New Jersey already have. Yeah, you know, it, that, that does, it does seem like it's really getting closer and closer to a breaking point where someone's going to be forced to have to act. Dave Schwartz, I noticed on your blog the other day, I sort of feel like uh, those of us writing about the uh, gaming industry, we may feel sorry when Columbia Sussex is gone. You know, they're sort of the uh, the uh, the Richard Nixon or the George W. Bush for uh, comedy writers. Uh, you know, Jay Leno will miss Bush. We're going to miss Columbia Sussex. Yeah, I mean, every day. And Well, for me, the Tropicana Casino in Atlantic City has been that way for like 20 years. I mean, even when Aztar was running it, for a while, they took off the Tropicana name and called it Trop World for no reason. <laughs> it was just awful. And hey Jeff, the appeal the the appeal of Vegas and the gaming industry will, I think, give you future content. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no doubt about that. New inept operator to fill the void. Hopefully not. You know, hopefully not me. And <laughs> indeed, um, it's, we've we've had our our day. Well, we're certainly we're certainly waiting for you guys to get back into the game. And one thing that's good about this. You know, I mean, it's hard to say there's good things about an economic downturn, but um, that, that may make uh, some of your analysis of the potential deals look more and more favorable. So uh, maybe uh, maybe there will be opportunity coming out of this uh, short-term downturn. I, I think so. I think I read an article the other day about about housing prices in Vegas, and you know, finally, all these these employees that will be working at these new multi-billion-dollar properties. 
you know, finally there'll be some affordability there. And I and I think that kind of rings true on the business sense as well. You know, a lot of these people that wanted to be here, everybody was just like saying, oh, we got to be there, we got to be there, and these land prices went high, which is fine if you can put a profitable business on there. But Tim and I just kept running these models, and we're like, God, $20 million an acre, $30 million an acre, $36 million an acre. And we got advice from some very wise people in Vegas who said, guys, take a breather, you know, Tom, go write your book, do whatever, and let's observe observe the scene for a while. And that's where, you know, you have guys that have gone through several cycles who their their expertise is invaluable. And I think you also start, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing, you know, swim trunks, right? And Well, it's, it's great advice because you look at these projects and even some of these big projects going up now, they didn't pay that. For, they didn't pay those prices for the land startup site, the the desert inn site, the city construction site. Yeah, construction. That was oh, and when, buy, when buying the desert inn, when buying the dunes, even the property he bought just south of the dunes, I think uh, he he only paid a couple hundred million bucks for. So you know, yeah, he's always bought land well. I mean, you know, so I, I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I think that you know there will be opportunities to get in at the right price. You just got to wait for a starwood. Looking to unload a couple hundred acres. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. On the operational side, you know, you guys touched on on some operators here that uh, I, I know you're you're having fun with, but they, you know, it's 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 you got to really you got to really love being in the business. It's a hard business, and so and there's there's not everyone's not a great operator, and I think you know when that tide goes out, you're going to see not only who did the good deals, but also who the good operators are, and uh, because if Vegas is constantly churning through it. And the customer customers are smart. Customers will be they can tell the difference. You think customer you think the word of mouth about this issue you guys were just talking about doesn't spread like you know wildfire? Of course it does. Of course it does. You think people's good experiences, you know, spread? Absolutely they do. So the word of mouth is much more powerful than I think most business people give it credit for. I uh, I agree. I think I'm going to let that be the last word. All right, guys. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you for being on. We really appreciate it. I uh, recommend everybody check out Tom's book called Devil or Nothing. I will post the link to Amazon when I put up the podcast. So Thank you very you much. Purchase it. And you can also uh, post the link to his site because there's all the videos. Of, oh, uh, I absolutely will. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. will. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to go around the table again and let uh, let people know where they can find you guys. Chuck, where if people want to find you on the web, where do they go? Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, David McKee, where can people find you? LasVegasAdvisor.com. Excellent. Jeff Simpson? LasVegasSun.com. And Dave Schwartz? Dieiscast.com. Excellent. Uh, thanks again to everybody. Um, have a fantastic weekend, and I wish everyone well. Thank you. Take guys. care, guys. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.